Yes, hello, it's me, your pal, Jason Louv, and it is episode 50 of the Ultra Culture Podcast, the big 5-0, as they say, and luckily, uh, life gets better at 50, as they tell me. We've only done 50 episodes, or rather, I should say, we've done a whole 50 episodes in the very short time period of five years. That's <laughs> that's how uh, a high frequency this podcast is. Uh, you know, podcasts are supposed to be one a week, but frankly, freaking everybody has a podcast now. That was kind of already starting to be true when I started this five years ago, but podcasts now are at the point that Bitcoin was at in the end of 2017. Or like your relatives were coming up to you saying, hey, how about that Bitcoin? And like you go to the post office and somebody who's working at the post office or somebody you're talking to online is like, oh, Bitcoin's going crazy. I heard this new cyber currency is going to uh, blow everyone's accounts through the roof. Uh, that's kind of what podcasts are like right now. Everyone's got one. It's like the new MySpace or the new poking somebody on Facebook. So as there is now literally nothing special about having a podcast and uh, asking people to be on your podcast to interview them, uh, it's gotten a little cringe. Um, I'm just going to be totally, <laughs> totally honest about that. Like literally saying, bro, will you be on my podcast is like the new poking somebody on Facebook. So yeah, um, 50 episodes in five years, a whole 50 episodes in five years. Frankly, I'm okay with that, at least so far. I would love to do them faster. But also, I would much prefer making sure that I'm actually putting out worthwhile and interesting content than just getting in this kind of hamster wheel cycle and pumping out episodes every week just to pump them out. Because I've done that in the past, and I have not been happy with things that I've just rushed into production. I won't mention any specific episodes, but there are definitely episodes I put out where I was like, what was the point of that? So I feel like this is a good place to remind people and actually most of all, remind myself what the point of this podcast has been and what it has been. Now, it will probably become something different in the future, but really what it has been for is to showcase conversations between myself and other people who are interested in consciousness, spirituality, futurism, and in many cases, magic, uh, because I have really wanted to show people what this stuff actually is in the real world and just have normal conversations about it as much as possible uh, and demonstrate that it is, you know, not just something I've created, that there are many, many people out there uh, who are interested in it and also kind of have an ongoing forum about, you know, the magical current, if we want to be so bold, where it has been, where it is going uh, to wherever possible speak to elders in the field uh, who have been at this for much much longer than I have, uh, which is critical for people to get a sense of their history and get a sense of where magic is going. By the way, you know what the most cringe thing in the world is? This is definitely not a hot take because I've been making this point, I feel like, in many ways for the last several years. But I often look back at magical writing from the 80s and the 90s in particular and it's all this like burn down the system man stuff and uh, attack consensus reality hack consensus reality everything must be destroyed this super freaking edgelord stuff which a lot of was started by the subject of today's podcast william s burroughs um, an important writer and 
but really <laughs> started to become, let's honest, extreme self-parody already by the late 80s, let alone the 1990s when it was just kind of like, you know, Nine Inch Nails video stock footage by that point. And now it's just utterly freaking painful, I have to say, to look around and see people caught in this perpetual adolescence of attack the system, attack capitalism, attack the patriarchy, like, and, and then, well, okay, but then you ask them, what does this actually mean? Like, can you, can you um, uh, elucidate? Can you bring out exactly what you mean by that? What are your critiques? What do you propose instead? What would you like to push us towards? And they invariably have no response other than throwing some shade of emotional fit. Not always, but in most cases. This has just been on my mind in, in, in terms of the question, where is the magical current going? Which is what I've been concerned with my whole life. And just driving around LA today, uh, I was thinking about this and musing that the entire, certainly all of America and certainly all of England and a good deal of the rest of the world has gone utterly insane. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any other way to describe it. Like, you know, we can't really have a deep analysis of it. People have lost their freaking minds. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the internet. A lot of it has to do with, I don't fucking know. It, it's just happened. People are completely out to lunch. In such a situation, what is the point, I ask you, of some type of counterculture attack the system, attack consensus reality brand of occultism. What is the point of that? There is no point. I'm sorry. The system is already broken. Like, uh, uh, you know, let's have a reality check. Like, maybe that was edgy in the 80s, but consensus reality has been hacked. All right. It's all fallen apart. My interest now more than ever is returning people to sanity. Uh, this is a kind of a hilarious thing for somebody like me to say. However, it has absolutely been my lived experience of magic as it actually is not the sales pitch, not, you know, the, not the kind of rave flyer propaganda from decades past. Magic as it is actually lived is a structuring process for your life. It is a set of techniques that discipline you, that empower you, but in a way that require a tremendous amount of responsibility and uh, you know it, it always I think it is always hilarious when people equate magic with uh, psychedelics for instance and assume that it has something to do with drug abuse when really it has nothing to do with that magic is a process of sobriety just like Buddhism is right you know like Buddhism is a process of sobering up from our addiction to uh, reality uh, to our addiction to our sense perceptions. Magic is the same, right? It's the Western version of it. This is certainly how I teach it uh, to my students at magic.me. And this is, I think, something the world needs more than ever right now. People need to sober up. People are having a bad fucking trip, okay? You don't need me to tell you that. Um, during such periods of time, it, I believe, behooves not, you know, not, not to become, uh, you know, slightly self-aggrandizing, but I think that I can say this, you know, with pretty absolute authority, it kind of behooves spiritual teachers to sober people up a little bit. That's basically what we're for. Okay. We're, we're trip counselors. We're there to remind you, 
You're just having a trip. You're just seeing the ripening of your own karma, of global karma. We're there to help remind people what is real and what is not. Um, and give them a sense that they actually are rooted in something eternal, which is far beyond this nonsense uh, world, which is grows more nonsensical by the day, it seems. That's what we're for. The symbols, in some cases, don't matter that much, just in the sense that there are different spiritual traditions around the world. There's Christianity, there's Buddhism, there's Western magic, there's Jainism, you know, take your pick, right? Um, the symbols and, and dogmas don't, uh, well, I shouldn't say dogmas, but the, you know, reality maps don't matter as much as the fundamental process of what it is that we actually do at the core, which is kind of allow people a space to calm down and remind them, buddy, you're just tripping. And it's not just you, it's the whole world. So, so you know, maybe if things you're having a bit of a bad trip, maybe it's time to just like take a little uh, break, you know, breathe a little bit, drink some tea, do a little bit of meditation, reconnect with what you already know to be true, which nobody else can, can give you. And just step outside of the drama of life for just long enough to get, re get your bearings back. That's what we do. Some of us end up stepping out altogether um, so that we can provide that safe space for other people. So um, this is important work at the moment, and it is what I want to call your attention to. Life is transitory. It is passing. This too shall pass. Even when the entire world is having a nightmare trip, the eternal spiritual truths, that which we know to be true, about life, the universe, and everything do not change. They are, they are as unchanging as the, you know, platonic forms, if you will. And that's not, there's nothing esoteric or occult about that in a sense. It's just reality. We are here to remind people of what they already know about what reality already is so that they can sober up long enough to make better decisions. I should caveat that by saying it may be wishful thinking uh, to hope that there will be some mass process of this happening for everybody. People have been saying that for a long time. There will be a great awakening, but uh, I wouldn't count on it. And I think that it is much more mature to focus on your own spiritual progress and the real life health and happiness of you and the people you care about, right? I mean, that's how, that's how the world changes one person at a time and it doesn't change dramatically, it simply changes by people sobering up uh, person by person. That's my message. That's what I'm teaching. That's certainly what I teach at magic.me, uh, my school for magic and meditation, where I guide, uh, I guide you through everything from traditional Buddhist meditation and Hindu meditation to ceremonial magic, chaos magic, that's the magic of dealing with chaos, not creating more of it, astral projection, lucid dreaming, the I Ching, all of these things, but all taught from the lens of these are tools for building a responsible, sober adult life, which is what we need, you know, and, and which people are phenomenally good at not doing. Uh, but not you clearly, because uh, if you're listening just to this show, you know, you're already seeking something that, you know, most people never will, let's be honest. Uh, you're already looking for 
a more stable platform to stand on. So as I'm sure you know, Magic.me is all ready for you online. There are now over 120 hours of instruction there. You, of course, don't need to watch all of it, but uh, because the key points are summarized very quickly. But there's just a massive um, depth and treasure trove of, of information there. I also do live office hours every other week, and we have a we have a very sizable and growing group now with a lot of regulars, which I'm I've mentioned before on the show. I'm very pleased about. Um, I'm very proud of my students. I'm very proud of the progress that they're making, the um, insights that they're coming to. Uh, I love helping. You know, I love working with people to get to where they're going. And my students are constantly teaching me. Uh, and you'll see that. I'm not just saying that. I know that's a common thing people say, but you'll, you'll see that if you watch the archives of the Q&A sessions with the students. It's a phenomenally intelligent group. And uh, there's a lot more coming. So the website, website again, is www.magic.me. It is best used on a subscription basis in which you get immediate access to literally everything on the site and can consume it in short five-minute units on a bathroom break if need be at a job you don't like, which is a situation I've been in many times. And uh, the live calls are there for you and it's just growing by the day. So give it a try. If you don't like it, you can email me and say, I don't like this. And then I will give you your money back as long as as it is within the parameters listed on the site when you sign up. Um, No one ever takes me up on that because they all tell me that this is one of the most phenomenal tools, if not the most phenomenal tool they've ever found for consciousness expansion, for reframing their life in a way that works, for empowering themselves truly to cut through the nonsense and get down to the core of who they truly are and what they truly want out of life. And I would say there's nothing better, but I actually think it's a little deeper than that. I will say that is literally the only thing that matters, right? Is self-knowledge, self-awareness, right? Knowledge of self. Whether my material helps you do that or whether you find that somewhere else, it doesn't matter to me. That is the most important thing in life. Everything else goes. You cannot take it with you, but that you can, which is why I do this, why I'm very proud of doing this, and why I'm very proud of my students most of all. So on that note, my guest today is the Washington, D.C.-based academic, musician, and music business executive, Casey Ray. Ray is currently the director of music licensing for Sirius XM Radio, prior to which he was the CEO of the Future of Music Coalition, a national advocacy organization for musicians. He is also an adjunct professor in Georgetown University's Communications, Culture, and Technology graduate program, as well as doing faculty duties at Berklee College of Music. He has testified before Congress, advised government agencies on cultural policy, published articles in leading law journals, appeared on NPR, CNBC, Bloomberg News, Sirius XM, and written op-eds for the LA Times, New York Times, Billboard, The Hill, and many more. He records music under the name The Contrarian and releases it from his avant-garde label Lux Eterna. Casey joined me on the show to discuss his new book, William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll, which begins with Burroughs' early days in St. Louis, Missouri, and follows him through the eight decades of his life, focusing on his relationships with and impact on such iconic musicians as Patti Smith, Lou Reed, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, Kurt Cobain, and many more. 
Throughout the 1960s, Burroughs' life intersected with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan, who sought out Burroughs to induce a creative catalyst. In the 1970s, he directly inspired David Bowie, became an aesthetic cornerstone to Lou Reed, and a paternal figure to Patti Smith. In the 1980s and up until his death in August 1997, Burroughs was a mentor and guru to the likes of Debbie Harry of Blondie, Michael Stipe of R.E.M., Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, and Kurt Cobain, with whom he recorded the musical collaboration The Priest They Called Him in 1992. Burroughs altered the destinies of an astounding array of musical acts in the latter half of the 20th century, and Casey Ray has outlined a compelling case for Burroughs' critical influence on rock music. So I connected with Casey recently, and he had many kind things to say about my work, which is always nice, and mentioned that some of my own writing about Burroughs on the Ultraculture blog had been immensely helpful to his own research. So I figured this was a good opportunity to revisit an author who has been of immense influence to certainly, you know, my my work, my writing, and my continued teaching endeavors. So on that note, please welcome Casey Ray to the podcast. Thank you for being on the show. And so your book is about William Burroughs and his connection with the music industry, which is a surprisingly huge topic being that he not only has inspired so many musicians from David Bowie to Led Zeppelin to the obvious, you know, psychic TV, throbbing gristle coil, but also it seems like almost every band, garage band that starts off at some point has this moment where they're sitting around saying, what should we name our band? (laughs) And it's so true. Inevitably, somebody pulls out a copy of Naked Lunch. And I actually did this at the age of 15. Right, right. Band name, not realizing it was such a thing. Yeah, so, yeah. The insect right trust, the insect trust it is, you know. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> better. Uh, it, it is true. Rectal, and rectal mucus corporation. Uh, there you go. Interstellar right. or whatever, you know. Right, uh, stuff that makes uh, Steely Dan uh, pale by comparison. <laughs> you know, I think they're probably, in terms of the borrow their name from Burroughs uh, Consortia, they're probably pretty high up on the list. Right, although probably that era is over, sadly. I think that William Burroughs, the transgressive, and we can talk about this in the interview, the transgressive value of William Burroughs is pretty low these days, but... Well, you know, I think the influence is atomized, and well, yeah, let's, yeah, let's dive in and talk about it. That's a good way to put it. So yeah, why don't you just start off by talking a little bit about the thesis of your book and what you were going for by writing this. So, you know, I don't sleep with a copy of Naked Lunch under my pillow anymore. Uh, You know, that might have been true when I was in my uh, teen years. But um, I've always been interested in Burroughs as a uh, persona of 20th century um, culture. And, you know, having come up in the 80s and 90s as a musician and somebody sort of messing around on the underground, as one does, uh, I just kind of kept being reminded of these uh, pockets of influence uh, from Burroughs. And of course, in that era, uh, I was also the beneficiary of a lot of his earlier audio experiments, spoken word uh, stuff was getting reissued. And I had some exposure to William S. Burroughs, the the creepy monologist, I suppose. Uh, And around that time, a lot of the uh, musicians of my generation 
um, you know, were incorporating Burroughs' spoken word stuff into their music or borrowing influence uh, in other ways. Um, you know, I remember seeing uh, Burroughs in the video for Just One Fix by Ministry, for example. And I was very much aware of the Kurt Cobain Burroughs collaboration even at the time. So a lot of this stuff stuck with me. Uh, and, you know, later on when I had the opportunity to uh, put together a proposal, um, that was, I bumped into some agents and they said, hey, uh, why don't you put something together? And this was kind of what I came up with because I had a feeling that I could make a case for influence that might go beyond uh, even what my early exposure was. And lo and behold, you know, the more I looked, the more I found. Uh, and what was particularly interesting for me was, um, you know, the reasons that people would be drawn to Burroughs were multifaceted. And I had a personal interest or an intellectual interest or a, a you know, metaphysical interest in pretty much all of them. Right. Uh, and so it was an interesting we, way for me to, yeah. Yeah. So I, it occurs to me, let's just put a pin in this real quick. And I, I feel like I should probably give the boilerplate. We're jumping in because both of us are very mm -hmm. familiar with William Burroughs and probably a lot of the people listening to this are. But I feel like it's probably worthwhile to just give the basics. Obviously, William Burroughs, one of the great... Uh, writers of the 20th century, very interested in in chemicals, drugs, and consciousness expansion, and using these as tools to attack the what he perceived as the social repression of the 1950s. Later, became a real interest of the uh, kind of the baby boomer rock generation, and and then and then the punks, and of course the industrial music era, because I think they saw in him a literary forebear of somebody who was doing transgressive things in writing that they were pretty much trying to emulate in music much as you know people had looked to earlier figures like Aleister Crowley or the Marquis de Sade or Rambeau or name your name your favorite as literary precursors of what became the kind of the very non the non rebellious status quo of rebellious music in the late mm -hmm. 20th century as everyone tried to top each other and of course of interest for people listening to this podcast burroughs was very very became very very interested in the occult mainly through his mentor brian geisen of course it, i should just you know throw like they had perhaps one of the most fascinating magical collaborations of the 20th century in the 50s and 1960s, during mm -hmm. which they came up with all kinds of goofy stuff. Yeah. They later taught, both of them taught Genesis Purage magic, who then taught me magic. Um, so it's, of, of course, personal interest and connection to me. But outside of that, um, yeah. And then, he, well, he died in 1997, right? And actually, I think the first thing I ever, the, the first writing I ever got published amazingly enough was a eulogy for william burroughs so when i was oh, I must interesting have been 17 16 so wow that's a beautiful thing yeah so you know you you are not only part of the direct lineage but you know you carry the the gene it's expressed in other ways that's a beautiful thing and uh i think your um sort of summary of the burroughs uh rock and roll nexus is spot on uh you know for me um I, it gave me an opportunity to look at mass media sociology in a way that I hadn't really, um, through a, from an angle that I hadn't 
previously considered. Uh, you know, Burroughs um, and Geisen used a creative uh, method called the cut-ups. And there was a period of time where they uh, were Burroughs evangelized evangelize the cut-ups pretty aggressively. And I think some of the artists in my book uh, certainly uh, borrowed that uh, methodology, uh, you know, and so that becomes sort of part of how music is made, you know, it's spliced together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cut-ups, you know, of course, to summarize that, you know, the cut-ups, maybe if you just want to boilerplate the cut-ups, I I think almost everyone on the, you know, everyone Pretty much, know, pretty much knows about cut-ups at this point, but maybe we should just give like the the elevator. Sure, point. sure. So on one level, cut-ups are you know it's the introduction of random chance into a creative process, uh, or it can just be done for LOLs. Um, the painter Brian Geisen, well, he was much more than a painter, really, but primarily uh, understood in the arts community as a painter. Uh, he had been um, preparing some canvases and inadvertently sliced on uh, sliced up the newspaper underneath into like four equal quadrants, and he rearranged them. And lo and behold, he f- he found interesting uh, revelations in the reassembled text. And this gets to my other point. There's some folks who are in, uh, uh, motivated to use cut-ups because it's a get-out-of-jail-free card in the creative process. It can jumpstart, you know, uh, creativity or lead yeah. to interesting juxtapositions. And then, of course, there's the audio version of that, uh, of which Burroughs was an early pioneer as well, tape splicing, uh, which, of course, traces uh, can you know be traced from the Beatles era, even before, obviously, with the uh, uh, new classical composers of the 20th century all the way up to throbbing gristle and into hip-hop yeah, yeah. but there's this there's this other dimension as well and that is the occult media arts uh, practiced by uh, Geisen and Burroughs and the usage of cut-ups as a divinatory uh, right like right. a scrying mirror yeah, yeah. and that, that's fascinating right because that's originally what they wanted to do use them for I mean Geisen at the point at the time said or Burroughs I think interpreting Geisen said, Painters have been using collage for 50 years. Writers should be able to catch up. And so it's collage for writers. It's collaging, cut up randomly, te- uh, yeah. random cut up text. But they had, they wanted to use it for divinatory purposes, like you said. But then also, as you touched upon, by the certainly by the 70s, when people became aware of this, they were using it as a get out of jail free card. Of course, some artists like, like I think David Bowie wrote almost all of his songs using the cut up. <laughs> and he, he just kept going. Yeah, he kept yeah. going. Uh, actually, great, in, I just want to add real quick. There's a great just yeah. to, to touch on something you said before. That you just reminded me. I read recently. There's a great Brian Eno. It, it became so popular. There's a great Brian Eno quote from the late '70s where he says something like, "You know, you you don't have to use the cut up for everything. <laughs> Sometimes you can just write lyrics." <laughs> oh, it's so true. Uh, the over reliance uh, is is really something um, with certain artists. Yeah, Bowie actually went as far as to. Um, uh, collaborate with the software designer in the mid 1990s on I guess yeah. what we would call an app. Uh, I would love no, that. Doesn't no one ever? No one has emulated that. It doesn't exist. I wish somebody would recreate it. That was for Outside, which also I think is one of his best albums. That yeah, no yeah. And I think um, Burroughs offered him a, a tunnel back into his musical passions, which is interesting. It's um, unsurprising to me that uh, his sort of uh, artistic musical rehabilitation would coincide with the application of those Burroughsian methods from his youth. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting thing. I would also um, say that Bowie was 
part of uh, it, maybe not as, as seriously as Genesis, but kind of part of the um, magical thinking uh, universe as well, uh, and and called the cutups a kind of Western tarot. Sure. Which I thought was fair. Although he was later very repentant about this. If you hear hear interviews from him later in life, he says, you know, people ask him about his occult phase in the 70s and he'll say, why are you asking me about this? That was like the worst time of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly was. To get away from Kenneth Anger. (laughs) Yeah. It was very harrowing for him. And and a lot of that, of course, was self inflicted. Uh, But I think that, you know, when we're considering the uh, cut ups as a sort of, divinatory device or occult media arts. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, there was an interesting quote from Burroughs where he said, you know, you cut into the uh, present and the future leaks mm, out. Future leaks uh, through, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, Geisen had his own sort of uh, outlook on this. He said, you know, we, we perform cut-ups until the machine arrives. And that gets me thinking, like, you know, oh, what, I what heard is it. this machine? I think I might be, like, only, like, partially paraphrasing, but that was, you know, the gist of it. Uh, so I start to see cut-ups as sort of the uh, lingua franca of, the, of our digital existence. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're experiencing a deluge of uh, re-juxtaposed um, sound, text, and image. And Burroughs posited, too, that in the future information will be, small units of information will be communicated electronically, uh, you know, snippets of uh, word, sound, and, and image. And the, the, the interesting thing here is, you know, Burroughs, it, it would have been hard to live like he did, uh, believing that the universe was a primarily hostile place. Uh, so part of his whole, uh, you know, kind of magical outlook was self-defense. Um, but he was also interested in, of course, in attacking this apparatus he called control, which, you know, at some points is a metaphor for addiction, at some points is a metaphor for 20th century mass media, yeah. at some points is a metaphor for author- authoritarian governments. And that, that's a uh, point I don't want to get away. I, I want to spend, if, I, I want to just stop and spend some time on that because I think that what you've just pulled out is for me the the real crux of Burroughs. And you know, clearly he was approaching the world from a traumatized position. And that's really important to dwell on the question of breaking control. Now, obviously, this is of a great personal importance to me as well, because Jen constantly enforced on me, we have to break control, Jason. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, so there's a lot of presuppositions in that statement. It pre- to to think that you need to break control, A, presupposes that you are controlled, therefore the statement itself controls you. And the fact that guys as sensitive to language as Burroughs never picked up on that, that they were consistently cursing themselves by right. positing a hostile universe. Mm-hmm. They were a reinforcing a dichotomy that uh, needed to be overcome thereby perpetuating samsara. Well, perpetuating uh, bad existences. I think, and you know, I, one thing that I say a lot is I think there's really only there's really only one choice. Now, I don't want to oversimplify, but there's one very important choice and perhaps really only one important choice for everyone in their lives. And that's to decide, and I purposefully say decide, whether they live in a friendly or unfriendly universe. And I think it is a decision. Well, um, you know, again, can you can you transform your experience into a Buddha field or are you going to experience the hell realms? It's all kind of uh, a matter of perception. And you're absolutely right. If Burroughs is, is so desperate to uh, 
you know, thwart the forces of control, perhaps, you know, it's stemming from his own inability to move beyond self-inflicted trauma. And we should touch on that as well, because it's inescapable when you're looking at Burroughs. You have to confront the issue of the death of Joan Vollmer, his killing of his wife, Joan Vollmer. And it was ruled an accident. And having examined this from several different sides and considered a lot of the uh, forensic evidence, you know, just to satisfy my own understanding, uh, not necessarily to moralize about it. Uh, I came to the conclusion that it probably was an accident. But at the same time, it was a heinous, horrendous act. And uh, it, and he never let himself off the hook for it. I don't let him off the hook for it in the book either. But it's you can see how it defines his obsessions. Huh. Can, with, can you touch upon maybe what that process was like for you? What you looked at? What led you to conclude that? And maybe just briefly mention what the incident was for those who don't sure. know. Sure. So a drunken act of William Tell is how you would nutshell uh, the, the event. Um, they were living in Mexico City. Uh, Burroughs was drinking a lot at that point. I, I don't actually think he was uh, using heroin or uh or opiates at that particular And this moment. was before he started writing, right? He had, I, I think this is important to point out that I, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that pretty much up until the age of 40, Burroughs had basically been a trust fund kid. He had inherited the fortune of the Burroughs adding machine, early calculator, and had it was, more or less... It was less than a fortune. It okay. was less than a fortune. Okay. Um, well, I'm curious about the details about that, because uh, but so I'm just giving you my broad understanding, and please correct yeah. me on the details but that he had basically drifted around and that, and had been, I think, either a... like He wasn't exactly a closeted homosexual, but he was in kind of a bisexual open marriage with Joan Vollmer. And they just kind yeah. of had this diffident existence with a lot of drugs and drift, drifting around. And, and this incident obviously capped that era. And yeah, so right he's way. coming out of... I, I, at that point, he's coming out of the... Um, original what became the beat generation which all grew out of uh volmer's apartment in uh manhattan and uh burroughs did receive an allowance from his parents um monthly that was a pretty tidy sum at two hundred dollars and he kept receiving that until he was 50 years old uh and two hundred dollars back in the uh you know late 30s early 40s is a lot of money probably still is a lot of money in in the 50s and into the 60s uh, for some folks. And so, yeah, he was the sort of scion of fading industrial wealth. Uh, but he wasn't rich like some of the people that he grew up with in St. Luke, you know. Um, he probably didn't see himself that way, but it, it afforded him the luxury to be a dilettante, basically. Uh, and he had written a little bit before um, the, the killing of his wife. Uh, he had collaborated with a, a, on a piece uh, with Jack Kerouac and you know, got turned down by Esquire or whatever. It was kind of unpublished. And it too actually had to do with a, a, a murder, uh, the killing of uh, David Cameron by uh, Carr. And so that was a, um, a sort of a traumatic uh, homicidal <laughs> event in their social circle preceding the killing of Joan Bulmer. Uh But they ended up in Mexico, a city, and um, dr they were drinking and it, they had a party. And Burroughs uh, kind of felt that something was sour about that day. Uh, he, on the way back from the liquor store, 
uh, he started crying and he didn't know why. And he felt a sense of just you know, deep, deep sadness. Uh, he went back up to the uh, to their apartment and there were witnesses to the event, a handful. But of course, everyone was like four sheets to the wind. Uh, as the story has it, at least, uh, the official story has it, um, at some point in the evening, they decided to play a game of William Tell. Um, who ultimately initiated, I don't know, but I think history, some, some folks think that Joan initiated it. Uh, you know, either way, she ended up with a shot glass on her head and Burroughs took aim and missed. Uh, he was apparently a, a, otherwise a fine marksman. Um, and, you know, he spent much of the rest of his life not uh, publicly and, and not, uh, I, I wouldn't say like overtly in his writing either, but certainly privately. And, uh, and, and it does come through, the impre- her impression and the trauma of the event does come through in, some, in a lot of his work. He's trying to change that event. Uh, and so some of the great terrors and, and, and things that he conjures in his uh, fiction, I think, represent very real traumas that he's trying to erase. This is also kind of what led him to Scientology for a little while. <laughs> yeah, a hilarious like, and bizarre period. Yeah, yeah. And so when he's doing cut-ups, particularly audio cut-ups, he's trying to change the sequence in the time track. You know what I mean? He's, he's yeah. actually uh, attempting to do a type of magic using recorded media because in his belief system, everything is a recording. Uh, but if everything is a recording, then it can be edited. Yeah. Well, it strikes me as listening to you that there's maybe three ways we can go in discussing Burroughs. <laughs> I'm interested in two of the three, and, and this is uh, why I would, I would love to take, I'm most interested in taking a kind of a meta position on Burroughs, and I'll explain what I mean. When we're talking about the death of Joan Vollmer, it's obviously very much the trend of our times uh, to re- kind of revise our opinion of great artists and find the dirt in their closet and then mm-hmm. exile them from the canon if need be, leaving very little left. Yeah. And that's obviously easy with Burroughs. Um, I think that you know, obviously there is the death of his wife. There is yeah. lifelong, lifelong heroin addiction. There is the undeniable pedophilic aspect of a lot of his work and, and probably his life. Uh, those things are serious and hard to avoid. But, yeah, he's like pre-canceled, you know, um, he arrives pre-canceled. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and I think would be just as transgressive if he was writing now uh, as, as at the time, even though so many of his political views and cultural views and his approach to, you know, uh, the, the broad political landscape, if we can put it that way, have been recapitulated by pop culture to the point that they're, unre- you know, they're the, pretty much the water that we swim in. Uh, that said, I'm sure he would switch tactics if he was writing now and and find a way to be just as transgressive as he was writing in the 50s. And mm-hmm. we, we live in a time very similar to the 1950s again, I think, in, a, in, a, yeah. in some ways and not others, obviously. But that that angle on Burroughs is the least interesting to me mm-hmm. because 
you know, like Crowley or like any of these people who are, many of them are not good people. You know, like Crowley was yeah. not a good person. Burroughs was not a good person. But listen, the titans tech, of the 20th you know. century, the titans of the 20th century, that sort of, uh, the, 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 a certain class of intellectual and artist, I mean, at, on a certain level, they're all problematic. And we could spend right. the rest of our lives trying to, uh, you know, somehow, uh, how can we uh, redress these sins? Exactly. For me, it's just not a very interesting conversation to have because the conversations, and I think that, and the main reason is they're both dead. You know, it's, it's these, these people at the end of the day are dead and they've been dead in the case of Burroughs for uh, over, I think 30 years now. Right. Right. And so, or 20 years rather with the thing with Burroughs that I'm most interested in is taking the meta position on Burroughs and looking at him as a symbol of two things. Uh, the first one, and, and maybe, and, and a symbol of the past and of the future and the point in American history where those things are melding into each other. And, and so I want to maybe... Well, that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> okay, great. All right, well, let's have, let's have, a, let's have a, an interesting conversation. There's not enough of them these days. Yeah. So well, think- you know, I listened to your show and, and there, you've, you've covered a lot of this uh, ground from a lot of different interesting yeah, angles, yeah, you, know? I mean, you know? Uh, like, I'm a fan of your show. Uh, and, I've, you know, a lot of the guests you have on, I'm interested separately in their, uh, in their pursuits. Um, so... This is absolutely a conversation I'd love to have, and one of the reasons I was excited to to talk to you. Um, and you know, it was interesting because when I was writing this book, I think I we were uh, I was finishing it, you know, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections, and some of what I was examining, you know, in Burroughs's kind of uh, universe, sort of his um, slogans like "smash the citadels of the Enlightenment." And I thinking I'm thinking about who the Wild Boys really are. This sort of in, uh, chaotic kind of like, you know angry, undifferentiated boy mass of, of uh, nihilistic aggression. Has anyone checked in on 8chan, you know? And it's, well, um, I mean, to, just to be blunt, I mean, I think that, that, that the transgressive element of Burroughs and Geisen is identical with, you know, if you were to say, where is that now? It's probably there. I yeah, can't think of yeah. anything else in our culture inhabiting that, directly dangerous and transgressive of a position you know i'm not and i'm not agreeing with any of it i'm just saying that seems to be the hole in our culture where that's the that's the material that cannot be absorbed and cannot be uh that is it seems to be literally psychologically dangerous to people and look bruce was fundamentally a sci-fi writer at the end of the day, oh, yeah, and yeah. and you know, so uh, That's a critical point. To remember, he's really yeah. interested in fringe science in general, but uh, I think a lot of what he was um, that really got him off was sort of like the psychological operations, you know, the sort of weaponizing of information at the at, at these sort of discrete levels of influence, um, these sort of bullets, if you will, of uh, of mind control. And um, you know the the idea that uh, memes can be weaponized, I think, is a, is a is an amazingly Barrosian conceit. Yes. And, oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. And so even even though I started out writing this book about like. No, look, I knew I was going to do this whole, the whole time. The musician thing is just a Trojan. You know, that's what gets them in the door. <laughs> but, uh, 
but you know, also a lot of the relationships, I think, um, the intellectual relationships did have the, this component of investigation. Uh, the actual real relationships that he had with uh, some people in this book, Genesis among them, uh, you know, Patty Smith would be included there for sure. Yeah, or even Scientology or, or Trungpa and people like this. And that for me was, that oh, yeah. for me was always the most interesting part about Burroughs. It was Burroughs the scientist, not not the right, not as a writer, not as a transgressor, but somebody who was truly willing to, I think, do the real duty of what writing is supposed to be, which yeah. is investigating parts of reality that everyone else is just too chicken shit to look yeah. at. On the front and asks, and and even extending that to the point of the construction of reality itself in a in a way that is truly. Uh, destabilizing and transgressive, which Burroughs, yeah. I don't think really any longer is, but he certainly was at the time. And there are certainly elements in our culture now that are in the same spirit. Uh, well, you don't really need a Burroughs if you're living in the universe that he conjured, you know? Right. And that's this is where I want to go with the Burroughs into the future. Absolutely. But let's start with, let's start, I, I really want to address one thing with Burroughs, which almost never comes up, which is, and it, it really clicked into place just listening to me listening to you, me listening to you talk about his background, which is Burroughs kind of as the symbol of a different America, Burroughs as a symbol of kind of the fading uh, Atlanticist, if you will, uh, control of America, of the Atlanticist elite on the East Coast, the kind of, um, you know, the genteel uh, uh, Anglo-American kind of waspy uh, Hamptons visiting yeah. Well, people that are, you know, perhaps symbolized in our modern era by, you could look at the Winklevoss twins of Facebook. You're, you're coming out of the last Gilded Age. I mean, we're right. cur currently in a new Gilded Age of, of even probably greater uh, disparity and, uh, uh, right. and whatever. He, he comes from, he's or kind cute. of like this Gatsby, and you know, great, great Gatsby. He comes from this great Gatsby world. But you can yes. see Burroughs is so fascinating in that way because he's like the exiled black sheep scion of that world, but still very much part of America's upper upper class and ruling class, yeah. and then spends this life kind of just in, <laughs> in the sewers. And I think that's really fascinating to look at because in a way he's largely presaging the America to come. He's kind of, he really is, a, in a, you know, that, that you can so much look at that as a symbol of America, I think somebody interesting to contrast with Burroughs in that way is maybe Gore Vidal, you know, who comes huh. out of the same yeah. world, is, is the same very much ruling, yeah. ruling crust, kind of has this genteel attitude that he's a public intellectual, but really he's there to kind of, you know, he, it's his, his moral duty in a way, his, his elected Protestant duty as the ruling elite to give the, to look after the serfs, you know, and I think well, in some ways, I guess Burroughs. you know, Bur Burroughs might be a sin eater of a kind. Uh, yeah, know, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, when you're when you're looking at him uh, next to somebody like Gore Vidal, I mean, obviously these gentlemen went in completely different directions. Uh, but I think uh, what might um, another commonality might be their uh, their incisiveness uh, in, sure. in in diagnosing the rot in American political culture. I mean, I wouldn't say that you know. In a world where Hunter Thompson existed in the 20th century, you know, Burroughs is not a political writer, but he is a uh, a, a great satirist in the yeah. Swiftian or even yeah, Twain yeah. mold. 
And, and Hunter Thompson is not, you know, certainly after my teenage years stopped being particularly interesting to me yeah. just yeah. because he, it's this very, I don't know, just kind of machismo and Hemingway is not interesting to me for the same reason. Right. Or Vidal and Burroughs are interesting to look at in that sense, I think because of the, the combination, this interesting combination of this like patrician background and then being gay. So be kind of being the ultimate ruling class, but also being a cultural outsider at the same time. So that they're so, uh, but also seeing society both from the position of the ruling elite, but also as somebody who is exiled from that society at the same time, and therefore can see it very clearly, you know, can see as bros, yeah. but what is on the end of everybody's forks or perhaps yeah. see it better. That's a, a very interesting. And I would say that your description of bros as a sin eater is, I think, apt, but also I would say, um, not to be too glib, but as a sin creator or a sin modeler, I mean, you know, we can't, Burroughs is very much modeling uh, a new way of being that many people spent their entire life and including his son, uh, not, not only spent their life trying to emulate, but was fatal to them. And yeah, yeah, without putting yeah. a moral thing on that, I think that it's just, he's formed such a fascinating lens almost like the decline and fall of America or the, the American empire, like in one person embodied yeah. in a person in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, is the, so, he yeah. is the organism. <laughs> He's the, the representative of, organism. You know, from the, the commissioner of sewers, as he called himself. You know. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, and I love, uh, I wish I'd talked to you uh, before I wrote the book, Jason. <laughs> it would have been very, very helpful. Uh, there will not be a sequel. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's absolutely uh, right. And you bring up some fascinating points. Um, he is emblematic of, uh, of much of the 20th century uh, that he inhabited and certainly might have presaged uh, some of the you know, social situations we're currently enduring. Um, you know, I, I resist the, uh, the temptation to, you know, turn him into a kind of, uh, Nostradamus, but um, yeah, but I, I, I think, think he's much yeah. closer to William Blake. You know what I mean? He had a deeply scarred vision, and he uh, would walk boldly to the sort of uh, extremities of that vision. And he was a cartographer of that, or Bosch, or something. You know what yeah, I mean? Totally. No, absolutely. <laughs> I think Bosch is a, a Bosch or Dante is an excellent. Yeah. He's you trying know, he, to he see was mapping something. the American Empire, but I think at the same time he was. You know, not he's not Nostradamus, but he, I think, like all great artists, simply embodied the energy of the, you know, the, the energy of the culture. You know, and and artists, great artists, can you know uh, embody things that are very subtle at the time, but then become overt later on. So oh, it's absolutely. Interesting to me, I mean, when I was reading your deep, right? When I was reading your your D book, I mean, that's like yeah. kind of what that 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 occurred to me. I mean, the, the sort of profound influence, the, uh, the, the socio-cultural influence, the economic yep. influence, yeah, yeah. the militaristic influence yeah, yeah. that kind of derives from, uh, you, you know, the, the conceptual conjuring of uh, sometimes a very small number of people. And so I wonder, like, yeah. was it's guys... Like embodying and conjuring. It's like, a, it's like an embodying and also influencing at the same time. Sure. So, like, you know, and I sometimes, I, I think uh, Jen has kind of hinted at this, that, you know, and you, met, you said it outright, you know, uh, 
Geisen and Perez were some of the more interesting uh, kind of sorcerer practitioners of the 20th century. Like, but what I wonder is, like, were they also effective? <laughs> well, I think they were, right? And, and I, I would argue that Geisen was, was clearly the, the, yeah. the yeah, top he, in that relationship, yeah, I would say, you know, in yeah, terms of, yeah. of, of uh, his ability as well. But what yeah. I was going to um, bring in, before is it's fascinating. I think if, if you just pick up the Guardian, or let's say you just read the uh, the op-ed section of the Guardian, you will find opinions that are not particularly different from the most transgressive ideas of Burroughs or Desaad or Crowley or any of these people. They, these have become the status quo in many ways. It's true. And, and we're living in this bizarre mirror universe uh, moment where the countercultural threat is coming from uh, the right. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's coming from the the longing for the escape for freedom, the escape from freedom, as Eric from. Yeah, it's the uh, uh, Aquarian clapback. You know, yeah, that's uh, a good way to put it. Yeah, I actually think in some ways that Donald Trump is a is an embodiment of you know the karma of the '60s, the unresolved karma of the '60s, <laughs> or or maybe it's just resolving in this way. You know, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Well, he's a good he's a good foil, late life foil for the boomers. You know. Like <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really think that 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 Donald Trump, uh, you know, like the whole like, you look at Donald Trump, Russian hackers. Uh, it's it sound it all reads like a like a spy book from the fifties. It does. You know what? It was weird like, to me when actually hallucinated by the boomers, <laughs> I think to entertain themselves. Yeah. It's a collective, uh, bad trip flashback, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. guess. Um, when I was uh, writing this thing and, and, uh, you know, I was kind of a knee deep in our early phase of, of, of the Trump situation. Uh, I would also be looking at like, you know, one of the Dr. Benway passages or something and just this arrogant, like, you know, buffoonish um, walking. What is it? The Dunner-Kruger test? Or is that how you say it? Uh, it's Dunning- walk- Dunning- yeah. Effect. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The walking like embodiment of that type of hubris. Yeah, 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 totally. Oh, I always think of Jeremy Irons now when I when I think of uh, Dr. Benway because of the Naked Lunch movie. But yeah, right. You know, and it's very um, it's very uh, patriarchal and it's very uh, you know country club in some ways too. And even though the president kind of plays it off like he's a man of the people, you know, this guy is um, an uh, East Coast elite, right? Oh, but, but just like a very, well, not exactly in the sense that he's, he's, he's. Well, they didn't let him into the good parties. That's right, exactly. what, and that's why he's so, he has the sads, but. Um, oh, yeah. But like, also a walking caricature that I think I think would be at home in a in a William Burroughs book. You know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, it's just the exaggerated qualities. Um, so this is fascinating to me, the, that angle of Burroughs as, you know, what can we draw out as this Burroughs as the symbol of where America has been and basically the slide of America into decay, but also the sense of Burroughs as, I don't want to say a window on the future because I don't think he is, but a broader question would be now that Burroughs has been capitu- recapitulated by the culture to the point where his positions on things are not only not transgressive, but largely status quo to a groaning level. I think that the question is, where do we go? Like, like well, let me put it more succinctly. Everything has been cut up. We live in a destabilized mm-hmm. world. We live in a, a system. Of, we live in a world where 
control has been cut up. You know, it's like everything is falling apart in a sense. We live, the internet is, you know, you can look at, I think, Burroughs, artists like Burroughs, artists like Geisen, and certainly artists, uh, musicians like David Bowie as precursor figures of the internet, where, for instance, there's the cut up, the cut up pre, just presages how we int- intake information now. And also Bowie, the sense of Bowie uh, embodying all these different identities in a way is kind of this early shamanic dancer, this early modeling of uh, a new form of consciousness, which sounds perhaps too glib, but just a new, how, how we now as human beings interface with reality where we don't really as much have fixed information, you know, identities or identities are cut up or the information intake or understanding of the universe is cut up. And so that, and that goes for Robert Anton Wilson too, the idea of reality tunnels. All these things are interesting uh, and perhaps useful models for dealing with the world we're in, but they're also models from earlier times and they haven't fully caught up with where we're at now. So I'm interested in where we go from here, I think, in terms of, you know, what, what is now that these magicians, if you want to call them that, have achieved all their objectives and we live in a destabilized, chaotic, shifting, undermined uh, uh, world. Well, what now? Because I don't think any of them thought that far, to be quite honest with you. And, well, and like a lot of yeah. people come to me and they, a lot of people, you know, I, I, I teach online and things like this and, and friends, friends of mine, particularly a lot of friends from the 90s, uh, will still come at me kind of carrying this cultural script of, oh, we have to destabilize control. We have to, you know, uh, uh, undermine the system. We have to, uh, yeah. you know, uh, monetize the eschaton. It's like, dude, th- this the 70s are back that way. You know, like ministry yeah. videos in this 90s are back that way. Like all that is ha- like, look around. What Like that's it's kind of like wearing like flares and a uh, and a buckskin jacket to the party. <laughs> yeah. Although maybe that would be really uh, what to exactly what you do right now. I, I wouldn't know. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. Much like the digital utopianism, uh, you know, that period of time, the the nineties and early two thousands. I think we might have uh, expected more liberating or liberative outcomes from mm-hmm. you know some of this stuff. Uh, you know, the interesting thing to me is like you know on a certain level, Burroughs was um, uh, supposing the a, a threat of greater enslavement, you know, or a greater kind of uh, um, opportunity for control, if you will. So I, you know, I don't know if I'm looking at this and looking at like um, his kind of uh, outlook. You know, we might still be working through it. <laughs> oh, sure. um, and so, as far as what to do or what this presages for, you know, our contemporary experience, uh, I don't. I, I I couldn't possibly hazard a guess. Uh, you know, I really want to believe that you know humanity can reorient itself to you know more empathic and compassionate understanding of what it means to be human and on that shared level of hey look we're we're all you know suffering temporary beings let's try to make the best of it uh i don't know if that has uh, that was burroughs's uh, (laughs) goal although it's interesting when i think about you know stuff like the climate crisis and you can include burroughs as a you know a radical environmentalist Uh, he he got there early on that you know he was interested in all of the biodome experiments that were kind of 
later problematic for different reasons. But you know, he was an early adopter of like a kind of radical environmental stance. And so that might be something that w- that we could benefit from, uh, you know, inserting into today's culture. Maybe that's the bleeding edge of punk rock. You know, maybe it's Greta. Uh, oh, I agree and, with that. Yeah. You know, and so it's not transgressive, but you know, radicalism can take the necessary pos- anti-establishment posture that it needs to. Not for a magazine cover, but for the fucking survival of the species. Well, I would hope I agree with you, and I think that the whole idea of anti-establishment now is the, the internet has just changed how we interact as people, and and you know the core the core presupposition of certainly Burroughs and Geisen's writing, and so many people's writing, and so many people's thinking is that there is an establishment. You know, yeah, they're, they're, I guess that's like, true, it's like, right? well, where, where are they? You know, like, you know, yes, there are, there are governments, there are police, there are military and things like that. But th- this idea that there are parents um, and the lashing out against parents is very much part of early human development. It's the idea that it's infantile. Know, I, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yes, but, but, or, well, not necessarily infantile. It's, it's adolescent. And I don't mean that in a dismissive sense, but it's very much the, the urge to, I think the conclusion I've drawn is, in most cases, the urge to attack the, uh, you know, um, um, projected parents. Let's say one one projects their own parental issues onto external authority figures. Yeah. The the urge to attack that is at the same time a begging, a an, an overwhelming yearning. Please punish me. Please let there be authority because uh, if if there is authority and I am punished then that shows that the, the universe makes sense, that there's structure yeah, to it. I think but, that's right, yeah. And you can see that in the early development of children where, where um, children who are just allowed to, you know, where, where there are no rules, not necessarily, not just certainly not, where there's just, it's completely open, like, you know, like do whatever you want. That's very profoundly disconcerting and stressful for people, particularly at early levels of development. Sure. So I see with the... Um, and, and it is, a, you know, people lash out because secretly they long to be punished. This is a very like SNM attitude, but I think it's very, uh, in many cases, is very true. Well, and, and, I mean, yeah. that's why, you know, tr- uh, Trump, the, the mean daddy, uh, you know, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. they all want his praise, right? Um, what, you know, they'll never get it. It'll just continue to be abusive. I but, I, you know, part of the, um, you know, the projection of the adolescent urge uh, against the establishment um, you know, I, I, I think that that's definitely um, a phenomenon. You know, you can you can see it uh, on Twitter <laughs> right now if you want. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and everyone, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure thing. But the the thing that's interesting to me is that that emotional urge can be manipulated, and you know, oh, demagogues can kind of uh, direct that traffic, so to speak. Cambridge Analytica, yeah, 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 yeah. That's fa- that that that's something that Burroughs and Geisen would have been fascinated by. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and 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 then you know there's the kind of uh, the the cultic aspects of it, uh, the emotional identification with the demagogue, right? And so, uh, control for Burroughs was also kind of going all the way back to his interest in Mesoamerican anthropology. Yeah, that's you know, a so, fascinating thing. With so Burroughs. he was hip to, and you know, a lot, some of this was pseudo scientific and definitely historically debunked. Uh, uh, but, you know, he was uh, really sort of intellectually fascinated with how the Mayan priestly caste could uh, maintain, um, you know, dominance of their, of their people. 
And, you know, he thought that the calendar system itself was kind of, a, you know, an expression of control, right? They were, uh, they were using that as a type of uh, mind control to, to uh, sort of get the, the people to believe in their omniscience, you know, <laughs> or something, uh, because they had that technology. And so maybe Cambridge Analytica or whatever is that technology. And, you know, so I think that some of that is definitely uh, contemporaneously, is I would say, uh, relevant. Yeah. And that's a really, that's, I think, my favorite, I mean, just a, my absolute favorite period of Burroughs writing is his last three books, the, the Western mm. Land Trilogy. Those are his Same best here. books, I think. And I think one of, from what I understand, one of the reasons for that is that they may have largely uh, been either fully, you know, ghostwritten to some extent or certainly worked over. And that's why the writing quality is so much better in those than the rest of his cut up books. Um, you know, I think that it also benefits from from a few things. Like if we're talking about the Western lands in particular, there was a genuine desire to sort of reconcile some of the episodes of his life that did bring him anguish. Uh, and uh, this was, a, it, it's sort of, it's a form of therapy in a way, you know, once again, he kind of creates a proxy character for himself and, uh, you know, sets it in a sort of semi-heroic uh, light. But, you know, it also makes use of uh, a lot of the sort of uh, anthropological and fringe science and sci-fi kind of tropes that he'd been employing uh, throughout his career. It's kind of like a, the greatest hits record, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and wonderful as science fiction books as well. Yeah, and for, I think, you know, for a lot of folks, um, you know, when they, I've been asked this question a few times, like, where would you start with Burroughs? And, you know, I have a, a few different answers. If you want a sense of that kind of slice of life, uh, street reportage that informed, you know, folks like Lou Reed, it's definitely junky, right? And, mm-hmm. and queer probably, but definitely junky. Uh, if you uh, sort of want to get a sense of the kind of uh, cosmic abstractions and hell realms of the 1960s, you know, Naked Lunch for sure, right? It, it, everything explodes in garish technicolor uh, and, and also Chisholm. Go ahead. One of his favorite words. Yeah, right? one of his favorite words, for sure. But if you wanted to get a sense of, um, you know, kind of his uh, his um, intellectual obsessions and pseudoscientific uh, leanings, um, and his interest in uh, semantics and, you know, mass media sociology, uh, you can read his collected um, essays and interviews in books like The Job or... Oh, yeah. Uh, the know, job, and, I, think, I think the job is his most important book. That and probably is, mind, yeah. You know? Uh, but if you just want a, a nice flavor of kind of the that has the Burroughs cadence and incorporates a lot of those themes and ideas, but also uh, might give you something of a better impression of the of the thinker behind them, definitely the Western lands. Yeah, and the reason I bring that up is is that his when he became fascinated, first of all. The reason that era is so fascinating for me is because that was the time when Burroughs actually really did get dis- in, into magic in a disciplined way. Where mm-hmm. he was, and he was serious; like he did yeah. not skimp. He didn't play off his celebrity status. He really went for it. And chaos magic and the early Peter Carroll, in particular, yeah. he was fascinated with, and uh, incorporating you know his shotgun paintings and things like that. But his analysis of you mentioned Mesoamerican, but also Egyptian culture in that was so, mm-hmm. you know, not, of course, not perhaps anthropologically accurate, although we still have very little knowledge of what was actually going on there. But 
Uh, we basically a, read uh, Norman Mailer's book. Did a psychedelic cliff notes version. That's very funny. That uh, makes a lot of sense. But the sense of, you know, like using, using these as a metaphor to talk about the control structures of modern society and the pyramids and particularly the obsession with immortality uh, that was present, you know, presumably with the Egyptians. Although, although frankly, I think it's now probably much more likely that uh, to say that the pyramids were uh, cult centers and initiation uh, areas rather than than tombs, which seems a little excessive. Uh, well, he had a great riff on it where he was basically saying it was an expression of the upper class, like everybody wants to be buried in this, you know, right, right, pyramidal right. tract, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, that bit, I think, shows up in pieces in the Western lands, too. Uh, you know, so he had these little routines and they would kind of um, get repurposed and uh, repositioned uh, across his um, life and career. I think at this time too, you know, the musicians are really sort of um, coming out of the punk era and having the benefit of uh, industrial and new methods of music making, like sampling, and also having Burroughs starting to appear on all of these records, like you know, even underground hip hop records. Uh, you know, it, it really raised his um, cultural his cultural cachet was. Uh, was still very much there. And at that time in his life, I mean, he probably really, if he ever gave a shit about any of this, he really did, you know, by, by that time. Uh, although, you know, he seemed to have a genuine affection for Kurt Cobain, which was interesting. Uh, maybe he thought he was... Oh, you, you said know, he didn't give a shit he about did, Yeah, he didn't, right. Like, was, you know, maybe say a bit about that. Um, you know, people would pop by when he lived in Lawrence, Kansas, and um, it wasn't like when he lived in New York at the bunker in the Bowery neighborhood. Uh, but it was he still had a, a fairly uh, steady stream of visitors, and many of them were from the rock and roll world. You know, Grant Hart from Whisker Du, uh, you know, would pop by. Uh, Al Jorgensen from Ministry uh, would pop by. Um, REM visited. I think Sonic Youth came by a couple of times. Uh, Patti Smith, who was a genuine friend, would visit him uh, fairly regularly right up to the end of his life. Uh, but, you know, so he had these sort of, uh, oh, Chris Stein and Debbie Harry, you know, folks like that, um, you know, from back in, in New York. And so he had a, a steady stream of visitors, but the new generation seemed to want to make pilgrimage to him. You know, and uh, Kurt Cobain was kind of cheap among them. And one of the interesting things about this book is that I was able to get some uh, some new sourcing on this, uh, and uh, it gave me an impression of of what the the day that they spent together actually looked like. Uh, Cobain's um, friend, close friend, and Nirvana's road manager, Alex McLeod, was the guy who brought him over to Bill's house. Um, and he really provided some interesting color, but he also um, gave me a sense of how Burroughs might have seen Cobain. And uh, one of the things that he told me was that at a certain point in their visit, he pulled uh, Alex McLeod aside and said, your, and Burroughs said, your friend hasn't learned his limitations, and he should mm -hmm. soon. <laughs> he needs to, uh, basically. And you know, even after that visit, um, Burroughs was impressed enough to send Kurt birthday cards and, uh, and, you know, with a personal note and a painting that he made 
just for Kurt, you know, which for Kurt was probably the brightest point in his entire existence at that time, you know. Uh, and even after he died, Burroughs spent some time pouring over the lyrics to you know, Nirvana's final album, In Utero, looking for any clue to, as to why this young man would, uh, would take his own life. Because no matter how dark and weird it got for Burroughs, uh, no matter you know, how great his own personal traumas were, uh, and also the trauma of lifelong addiction, which you know, he had to take methadone right up until the end of his life. Yeah. Uh, you know, like no matter, uh, despite all of that, you know, he, he never could understand why somebody would off themselves. And so he was deeply troubled. Uh, and so sometimes the meetings in the book are, you know, uh, they might be sort of sh- ships in the night, but I often find that uh, even when they are, they happen at key junctures in the development of an artist's career. And so that's, in some ways, uh, Burroughs acting as an accelerant or a catalyst, um, you know, which in and of itself seems to almost be sort of a magical thing, right? Uh, when we talk about gurus and lineages and transmissions and stuff like that, uh, it doesn't have to be overt to actually be legitimate in terms of the uh, the outlook and the, the the innerscapes of the individuals. Yeah, well, I think there's a really that that certainly was true in terms of how people interacted with them. But I I think as you talk about Kurt Cobain, this is really I think one of the most tragic parts of Burroughs is some of these interactions where you know Burroughs was not a hero and he wasn't a good person. And I think that he although well, I mean he was a gentleman and he was he kind and caring to the people that he liked. He uh, yeah. but he he had the neglect of his son. Um, you know, look, he shot his the the boy's mother in the head. That's going to complicate any relationship. Yeah. but it's entirely unforgivable. Right. Well, uh, why I bring that up, certainly. And yes, and the neglect of his son is incredibly tragic, but and, and is emblematic of this. But I think that despite the fact that Burroughs was clearly, clearly careerist and, and very self-interested in self-promotion, he repeatedly would say that he's not writing for people to emulate him. He's telling people, don't do this. It was a yeah. to, you know, he shows that I, I can't think of any other than maybe Hubert Selbert, uh, uh, Hubert Selby Jr. It's hard to think of a writer that more clearly depicts the utter degradation and horror of addiction. Right. And yet at the same time, he ended up in this kind of, um, godfather position, not only to young artists, but to the counterculture as a whole. Yeah, and I think that my favorite Burroughs story, actually, which really just encapsulates uh, some of these later life interactions, is I think in it's either in the it's in a documentary about the making of Naked Lunch the movie, and there's an interview with uh, Paul Weller, the actor, where he says that you know he was playing Burroughs at the time. I think he was in his late 30s, and that he goes up to William Burroughs. That he, or that he had found some type of uh, pill that was like, uh, you know, some some opiated pill, or uh, it, was, it was some painkiller, or or um, you know, benzo, or something like that. Uh, but I think it was opiate. And he went up to Burroughs, probably kind of trying to impress him, saying, you know, hey, Bill, I found these pills in my, you know, somebody a fan left them, or something like that. You know, what are these? You know, can I take these? And he says that Burroughs just looked at him and said. It's junk. <laughs> junk. And he says that it's like in this moment of him saying, it's like he pierced me yeah. all the way to the, my soul. And it was like a metaphor for everywhere in my life that I was just skating along thinking I could get by. Or like, oh yeah, I can drink that much. I can sleep around. I can do this. I can do that. And it was like, you realize it's like, no, I mean, this is a guy who has been to the other side of that and knows 
right. you don't go there. It's like you're right. supposed to go there for a reason. Right. Well, and, you know, it's funny. Yeah, I, in, the book, in the book, I, I kind of have to examine the question, like, you know, would Kurt Cobain have tried heroin if uh, he hadn't uh, you know, been a Burroughs fan? And he was. You know, he was, he was me. He was you. He was the kid with the dog-eared copy of Naked Lunch in high school. Know, uh, and it obviously made an impression for him. Everyone, but okay, <laughs> but right, right, right. Everything so else. I mean, and that's fine. But like, I, I also look at his environment, and I'm like, okay, so this is a kid growing up in the Pacific Northwest on a true go where nowhere track. You know, what's he going to work at Seven Eleven or in the, in the woods? Uh, you know, this is uh, this is what his life looks like, and he's coming up in, at a time where you, you know it, there was truly a heroin like in the Pacific Northwest at that time in the in the mid to late 80s. And, uh, you know, there's also guys like Iggy Pop and Keith Richards and stuff out there in the world. So, yeah. you know, I, I certainly think that uh, you can't, you know, hang this all on Burroughs. Uh, no, I'm not also, I know you're not for sure, because I think you did a really good job, like sort of underscoring how the, the his actual work, uh, you know, portrays the true grimness of addiction. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lifestyle crush on William Burroughs. You know, they like the cut of his jib. He seems like a, you know, an outlaw kind of figure. Uh, you know, there's something sort of seedy and attractive about that, uh, that, that, persona. Uh, and people are kind of drawn to that. And the drugs are definitely part of it. I mean, you can read the book and still sort of feel like, no, that guy's pretty cool. Right. And, uh, and so I, I definitely think that, um, you know, more, there are instances of, of folks who might be tempted to, uh, to try, uh, you know, hard drugs because, uh, you know, they think it looks cool. Um, Burroughs made me do it. Right. But at the same time, that's a really dumb reason to do anything. And like you said, you know, you, it didn't happen to you. So obviously this is, uh, this is not a, a universal. Well, I actually have to thank William Burroughs in a sense for my drug education in a sense. Right. Like, I remember reading right. at lunch as a, in, as a client 15 and the whole end of it basically tells you what each drug does. It's kind of like the dare manual. Yeah. I was going through it. It's like, well, these, you know, I can clearly see why I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. And I, I certainly wasn't going to, you know, be trekking in the jungles of, uh, you know, Latin America and South America. Looking yeah, that's interesting how that's become a thing too, you know, where he was oh, the, doing uh, ayahuasca in the 50s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the ayahuasca uh, uh, tourism. Um, but yeah, I recently, I'm sure you've seen this, but I actually recently watched it for the first time, that movie Christian F. I was looking at it just the other day because somebody had randomly re-edited Bowie's performance uh, or quote-unquote performance in that film uh, and put it, uh, you know, to... to, to more complete music or something, mm. right? They, they've done something like, you know, 20, yeah. 2019 and internet with it. Yeah. Uh, but, but it actually kind of re-reminded me of the existence of that film. And then, of course, the, you know, the film is based on uh, the, the, the account of the, a real-life uh, young woman, you know, who kind of put herself through that awful ringer. Yeah, I think it's both that movie and Burroughs' work are very important and prescient now for the reason of the opioid crisis in America. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, so I, I recently watched this for the first time and the background, uh, yes, there's a pivotal David Bowie's, you know, at the height of his career, David Bowie concert in that movie in Berlin where he comes out and does Station to Station in 1978 and it's just transcendent. Yeah, Bowie's most magical song in my opinion. Yeah, and that's where 
the character Christiana, who's a you know a real person, of course, uh, uh, first as heroine. But that movie shows a time in, in the seventies. It's the same period you're talking about in the seventies in Germany. There was you know Berlin was the heroin capital of Europe, and sure, it, yeah. it shows it shows this insane world where every it seems like at least in the movie world of the film, almost every teenager in Berlin was on heroin. Yeah. And it's ghoulish. And, you know, there's just scenes in that movie is just, just ghoulish. There are scenes in that movie where, you know, you're seeing 13-year-old prostitutes, male and female, you know, like shooting up with toilet water, just, you know, shooting blood out of the syringes, all of this. And it, it shows the awfulness of heroin. And I think that the awfulness, awfulness of heroin, which people also don't fully comprehend when they're seeing media accounts of it is what it does to people's personalities. It's like, in oh, for you sure. see these things and you see all oh, this goth, this like very Victorian era idea of like, oh, the wilting away to consumption person of the junkie. But what they don't show you is that heroin addicts are assholes. They'd lie to you. They will do anything yeah. to get money from yeah. you. If you, were, if you love them, if you were their friend, they will play on that to get money. And it becomes like... It's a life of like total... Of total vile desperation. And then, yeah. of course, what that does to the psyche, the, the guilt and shame that a person feels, uh, you know, n- knowing, you know, consciously that they're, uh, hab- you know, habituated to yeah. that behavior. It's a terrifying, horrible thing. And, you know, let's be clear, like not all of those, uh, those kids get $200 a month in 1930s money. <laughs> right. I mean, interact with, I, mean, I don't know if you've, you've interacted with street junkies a lot, but you know, you interact with street junkies and I've had, had street junkies tell me things like, you know, like when they can't afford syringes, they'll rip open their arm with a bottle cap to put heroin in and from a dropper, you know, things sure. like that. this is things yeah. that would just not even occur to people who are not in the throes of addiction. So people yeah. don't understand that part of it. But I say that not in a moralizing way, because it, I truly do believe that addiction is a disease and a truly horrible one. Right. Uh, um, that, that because of the way that the chemicals change somebody's brain, you know, people have this idea, oh, well, just, you know, have some willpower, kick heroin. It's like they don't understand that, that your body no longer makes it, the opiates it needs just to dull the, the agony of being alive. So the agony of coming off of heroin is like being dragged through glass with no skin for like and a week. Burroughs was very, very on point about the sort of cellular re-shaping yeah. uh, that occurs uh, from addiction and that it, it changes the very physiology. Uh, and of course, you know, the, our tendencies to sort of uh, habit in general, you know, in the more psychological realm, you know, is also a pretty intense and powerful thing. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, kids don't do drugs, right? And I do think that that message does come across pretty clearly in his work. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there are, you know, very tragic aspects of, uh, you know, having icons of the 20th century sort of embody a, 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 a chic sort of, uh, even if it's not intentional, you know what I mean? Like right. this, this made Burroughs very, very angry. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of what I'm pointing to. I'm not necessarily saying like, oh, he influenced people to do drugs. I just feel that it's kind of a tragic juxtaposition. It's a tragic outcome, you it's, know, from... it's yeah. Well, it's a tragic to, for people, young people to become, like Kurt Cobain to be coming to him. And then Burroughs is saying he hasn't learned his limits. Yeah. And even his son died trying to emulate him. So, but I'm not laying yeah. him in that sense. I think that, and I think that a more important, instead of looking at, oh, do artists induce people to do drugs. I think a really critical thing to look at right now in the context of Burroughs' work 
is the opioid crisis because we can't right. ignore in this in this conversation that basically the large numbers of Americans have been addicted to heroin by corporations, and that right. is directly out of Naked Lunch. I mean, you look at right. I forget the name of the the company that invented OxyContin, but in the last few I think about six months ago, a new story came out where they found a transcript in the early 90s or whenever OxyContin was in, invented where the heads of this company were having a party and, they, they, and the head of the company is, is saying something like, you know, there's going to be a blizzard of OxyContin and a blizzard of money and it's going to be very white, meaning, you know, they're going to addict basically white America to this drug. <laughs> and so you look at this and you look at Naked Lunch and Bros is talking about um, heroin as a metaphor for control sure, and the entire structure of the drug. He, he very clearly points out in that book how there really is no line between the drug trade and the, 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 the straight world and the straight-laced world. It goes into the government. It's not only, are there, is there no blur? He basically says that <laughs> society is a system to addict people. Well, no yeah, I mean, that's the, uh, that's, uh, it's vertically integrated consumption, uh, <laughs> you know, on all levels. It's quantum consumption, you know, it's, uh, it's the very, uh, it's, the, it's the reason of, for the beast, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that that's sort of where the Burroughs metaphysics are actually kind of, uh, could, could serve as a useful mental model on yeah. a lot of different levels to, to sort of examine uh, a lot of what we're experiencing in this part of the century. And that's what this book actually gave me uh, uh, the opportunity to do. Uh, and the timing of it was interesting. And, um, you know, it was fun, obviously, to revisit, uh, you know, the kind of the development of 20th century music culture, uh, which is, has its own tales to tell, right? Uh, but I tried to uh, allow those stories to inform the broader themes that I was working with. And I think in our conversation, we touched on kind of all of them, right? And and uh, the impression that I get is that not necessarily making a case for like contemporary or ongoing relevance in a, in a direct uh, way, but more along the lines of what you were driving at, right? Like what is the cumulative, uh, you know, sort of outcome <laughs> from uh, all of these trends and, uh, you know, what what sort of uh, mental models and, and frameworks can the history itself allow us to uh, port over to our, our current experience and what can Burroughs' work itself tell us about that uh the it's not really the least interesting stuff to me is like and then i partied with the stones you know <laughs> although yeah. although you know that happened too um but uh, uh and and it is actually kind of interesting to sort of see what um people of uh of uh you know sort of elite um 20th century media culture how they viewed each other <laughs> and like you know are you slumming it with burrows or or is it like you know what is the purpose here um and uh, but some sometimes I think it's a it's more interesting to to actually look at the uh, the kind of uh, cognitive uh, frameworks you know what I mean? like like Burroughs was trying to push the actual envelope of human consciousness like he was very interested in a transformative uh, not just of consciousness but in the actual biological being we thought we had to escape the planet Earth and essentially become an evolved kind of space admiral in order to avoid calamity uh, and but but obviously um, you know he's he's uh, 
pushing the limits of uh, you know his own imagination and, and what he could uh, envision as well. Um, and I, that's why I keep coming back to the idea of scrying. Uh, when when he and Geisen first started hanging out, it was in Paris, and it was during the time you know beat hotel time uh, frame, and so they would hang out at. Uh, in Burroughs's pad in the B Hotel, this one-room uh, apartment, and actually do sort of occult experiments. And they would um, they experimented with several forms of scrying. So when you think about things like the cut-ups, you know, you get to the the logical extension of that, and then you take that to our, our contemporary experience. And I'm not really sure if uh, the the internet is a scrying mirror or if it's a uh, it's another sort of engine of control. <laughs> the jury is out. Yeah, so it depends on what website you go to. I guess so, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's that period is is of course fascinating to me because um, it was one of the one of the periods where Burroughs was actually doing uh, occult experiments instead of just using them as a metaphor in his writing. And I think that, but I think you're we're, we're we seem to be kind of like coming to yeah, a circling, point yeah, yeah. And I think that it's interesting some of the things you're saying. Because uh, one thing that I've been mulling over in the back of my head as we've been having this conversation is the legacy of Burroughs and how he will be perceived going forward by mm-hmm. even by future generations. And I'm I'm just thinking during his lifetime, which you know, and and I was you know alive and aware of him while he was still alive. He was really this fascinating case of somebody who had been completely rejected by the literary mainstream and certainly had not been given a place in American letters like somebody like Gore Vidal or Norman Mailer, for instance, but who uh, had been completely embraced by the pop culture at a time where there was a clear distinction between those things and those walls hadn't as much broken down. And so it's interesting to think about in terms now of like, you know, like, will Burroughs be seen as, will he be given a place within the literary canon? Will he be seen as perhaps a pivotal, perhaps one of the, perhaps the pivotal figure of 20th century letters, which I think you can make a, a good argument for. But it's interesting now looking on the long view, you know, at Burroughs' transgressive, transgressiveness and where it fits in. And I think one thing that I've been thinking about I was thinking about the Marquis de Sade a lot recently and writing a bit about him. And one thing that I've been thinking about is how do you define liberalism, right? And I, I mean that in the, the ongoing historical sense rather than the current political sense. <clears throat> and the, the answer that I came up with is it is the assumption that the, it is the assumption that the, when human beings act in a, destructive or negative manner, it is because of external imposition, right? So that mm-hmm. uh, rather than innate, some innate evil, you know, the theory of innate evil, that human beings are born evil. Well, that's a, that's a very uh, reactionary idea. It's a Christian idea. It's a Catholic idea. It's an even more so a Protestant idea mm-hmm. that there is original sin. And, and mm-hmm. I, I feel that in a lot of ways, if we trace the liberal tradition back to the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, it's really a reaction to that idea. It's that flipping that around, it's like, no, there's no original sin. Actually, sin is imposed by external structures. And, and so we see that in Rousseau's idea of the noble savage. We right. see that in the, in the anti-clerical and anti-monarchical uh, monarchical revolution. You know, the, the, that, that's a, still a very, uh, very sort of Western view because there, you know, there's okay. another sort of flip side 
uh, kind of metaphysics, and 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 that would sort of suggest that yeah, there is no original sin because there's you know like I don't know Buddha nature or Atman or whatever you want to call it, and that uh, rather than the sort of imposition of externalities, it's um, well in the sort of Buddhist realm, it would be grasping at attachments, and uh, uh, you know I, I think yes. in the broader Vedic tradition, of course, there's the interplay of, of illusory elements that yes, uh, yes. create the conditions and the progression of karma. Which is a more sophisticated view, I think. But I, I think in terms of just the development of Western civilization, which of course has capitulated a lot of those ideas, and those are very Brosian ideas. You know, he's a very Buddhist writer in that sense. That. Um, yeah, it's a, there's a dark satori involved. <laughs> well, I think when he talks, that, you know, it's like the, the Buddhism itself, not to go on a tangent, because I want to pull it back to what I, the point I was making, but Buddhism is a religion of breaking addiction. Absolutely. That's right. Unconditioning attachments. Like neck and neck with, and I'm sure that's why Burroughs was so drawn to it. So I think that, um, but we, we see, if we see the tracing of history, it's like, well, you know, like these things are just, these structures are torn down, these structures are destroyed, and it doesn't stop the evil that people do. And so there's this drive to, well, what else can be destroyed? You know, what can be torn down? Uh, can the mm-hmm. nation state itself right. be torn down? Can the, um, you know, and, and until we get to the 20th century with the development of deconstructionism and the writing of people like Burroughs and Geisen, who in some ways presages, um, you know, post-structuralism, and the idea, well, we need to cut up the structure of existence itself, you know, like we need to, mm-hmm. we need to you know, the cut up mm-hmm. as a metaphor. And mm-hmm. these are, of course, you know, these are things that are hot political battles at the moment in terms of um, the direction yeah. society will go to. But I think that to wrap that up, I think the point that I'm trying to make is that in this sense, we can clearly see Burroughs and Geisen as not... Um, apart from and not transgressive at all, but really as inheritors of the Western liberal tradition in a sense, where they're just looking for what is the next frontier of um, cut up? What is the next frontier? Where are there new boundaries to be torn down? Whether that's a good idea is I think perhaps a question that, that perhaps the whole world is asking itself in various ways at the moment. You know, I would respond, you know, basically my personal view is you can't cut up what isn't there. You know what I mean? So there's a futility to it. And there's, um, you mentioned it at the top of our conversation, there's a a reinforcing of a duality or manichaeistic kind of uh, view of the the universe. And, um, you know, that's why in some ways Burroughs did remind me of uh, William Blake. I'm thinking of like, you know, Urizen and the other one, you know, <laughs> uh, and so this looks sort of like kind of warring, kind of uh, god and demiurge kind of situation, and control is the demiurge, you know, the, the thing that sort of uh, condition, conditions humanity. Yes, it's a very gnostic uh, uh, outlook for sure, uh, and so there's this sort of conditioning of humanity by this um, this demiurge that broke away from the all good oneness. Uh, you know, and, um, and I think that, uh, you, you know, in some ways, that's kind of the Burroughs met- metaphysics in a nutshell. Uh, I definitely think that the idea of, um, you know, dissolving attachment and, you know, seeing control as being a, a, a form of condition is, is really Buddhistic in its, um, in its basic sense. So, you know, I, I actually, this, I, when I finished writing this book, I thought I was done with it. 
you know, but um, conversations like this remind me that uh, you know, there's certainly Bill shows up sometimes like a friendly ghost you know, still in my life. <laughs> I never met him, you know, I did, I did not know him personally, but, you know, I think when you spend a lot of time inside somebody's head, uh, you, you know, you take something with you. And uh, for better or for worse, I guess I'll have to work that out in my own karma. Well, I think the whole world will, and and not necessarily because of Burroughs, but because he was a true artist and a true writer, and that he actually did take, he, he depicted what others were afraid to depict. My favorite quote of, about art of all time is um, Akira Kurosawa, who said, you know, the duty of the artist is to not look away. And, and we live in a time when uh, artists, artists look away, right? and where we are encouraged we live in a 50s-like moment where everything is taboo and everything is controlled in a new way. And, uh, and that control comes not top-down, but we have created a world in which we control and police each other. You yeah, know, it, control it's, is decentralized. It's among all it's of It's not uh, nothing is true, everything is permitted. It's nothing is true, nothing is permitted, which <laughs> is you know, <laughs> the, the worst of all worlds. <laughs> it really is. And I think that Maybe we can just leave this as an open question, but I often wonder what Burroughs would have thought of our current cultural moment, you know, which is we live in the chaos moment, you know, we live in the pandemic aeon, we live in the, in, in the chaos culture, and no, nobody's happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, in some ways, it's more controlling. Victory, winning. Yeah, good job, team. <laughs> but, uh, so, so more, awesome. more, more open, more troubling, and oh, there we have we have come not to a new aeon or a apocalypse, but simply to a new set of troubling and and perhaps unanswerable questions, at least in the moment. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it was awesome talking to you. Where can people find your book and more about you? Well, uh, you can find this sucker in uh, everywhere fine books are sold. Uh, so, you know, by all means, go to your local independent bookseller. And, uh, you know, I know it's it's out there. Uh, William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll. You can also get it on Amazon and you can also get it direct from my publisher, University of Texas Press. Uh, you know, Google's your friend, William S. Burroughs and the Cult of Rock and Roll. You know, Casey Ray and Burroughs ought to get you somewhere. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, and do you have Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, Casey Contrarian, and I'm not going to bother to uh, spell it out for you. Um, You can work that out on your own end. Straightforward. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right, Casey, it was a great conversation. Absolutely. The book continues to do very well. Thank you. Good talking to you, man. Okay, I hope you really, really enjoyed that show. It was a great opportunity to have a great conversation about a very important author, very influential author, uh, someone who's been influential for the right reasons and the wrong reasons. Absolutely check out magic.me, a vast treasure trove of magic, mysticism, meditation, and consciousness expansion, where the secrets of self-empowerment and perhaps of the universe itself await you. Okay, be good, and I will see you in class.